Let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 21. We're going to look at Acts chapter 21, verses 17, and we're going to go through uh, 22, uh, just right into verse 2 there. Acts 21, 17 through 22. Two. We've been working through the book of Acts. Uh, this is season two. Uh, last year we worked through uh, Acts 1 through 15, and, uh, and then um, in 2023 we picked up with, uh, with season two, Acts 16, and we'll finish this book in about uh, seven or eight weeks if we... Uh, if we, if, if the speaker doesn't go too long, and if he doesn't get long-winded, um, then we'll we'll progress and, and finish this up. And then as soon as this series wraps up, uh, we'll start into a Gospel of Matthew series, and that's going to feature the seven mountains in the Book of Matthew. Yeah, very interesting um, structure, Matthew. It's uh, around these seven mountain experiences, and uh, and so we'll we'll take a look at that as we lead into Easter. But until then, we're going to work through the rest of Acts um, chapters twenty through twenty eight. Uh, today's passage uh, is a shift in what has taken place in Paul's life. Uh, think about it as uh, he had been. In, um, well, maybe the better way to put it is this, that there's a cliche uh, in the football world. My mind's on football. It's been kind of a football-themed weekend. And just finish the sentence if you, if you know uh, this statement. Defense wins. Yeah, championships, right? And there's not a lot of us um, awake at this point, but, but defense wins championships. That was coined by a guy named Bear Bryant, a famous coach from Alabama, who said, uh, offense sells tickets, but defense wins championships. And um, for all you non-football folks, offense is when you have the ball and you're trying to progress it down the field and you're actively trying to move the ball. And defense is the, they're trying to prevent that from happening. Uh, so what does that have to do with today's sermon? As we approach this new section of the book of Acts, um, for the past 10 years in Paul's life, he had been actively sharing the gospel, actively traveling, doing ministry. He took three missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean region. So Paul has basically been on offense. But now, beginning with today's chapter, until the end of the book, he's really shifting to defense. Um, this passage is the first of five defenses that Paul will make. Uh, he's been impri- he'll be in prison over the next eight chapters, in custody, being transported, and really largely out of the game um, as far as traveling and proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, making disciples. Now he's just held in a cell for the most part, and, and during that time, he'll be called upon to make a defense, and he does this five times in our remaining passages. And so the last section of Paul's life is, is, um, is really different than the first. Uh, many people, if, if you uh, think about a, a, a shift in, out of your work life into retirement, this might, um, this might resonate. Paul is shifting gears out of a, a very productive period of his life for gospel kingdom impact, and, and now he's going into a different period where it's not going to be so active, but he, he, his mind is going to work in such a way that, um, that is beautiful. He's actually, these five defenses are powerful. This is also a good time to point out uh, some of the similarities between uh, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and Paul's journey to Jerusalem. There are so many parallels here. Uh, Patrick Schreiner points out some of the following. 
that Jesus made all of these passion predictions to His disciples in the same way that Paul had predicted that His journey to Jerusalem would end in some sort of suffering. Uh, Jesus gave His disciples a farewell address recorded in Luke 22. Uh, Paul gave a farewell address to the Ephesian elders, which we read about a few weeks ago. There was Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. You remember the phrase, He he set His face toward Jerusalem. Uh, Paul as well is setting his face toward Jerusalem. Um, There were many people um, who didn't understand Jesus and didn't understand his need to go to Jerusalem in the same way that Paul had many people warn him about going to Jerusalem. When Jesus got to Jerusalem, there was a temple visit. Uh, Paul likely also in this passage also has a temple visit. Uh, Jesus was opposed by scribes and Sadducees, and, uh, and Paul as well faces that. Jesus was seized by a crowd. Uh, Paul was seized by a crowd. Um, Jesus was slapped by the high priest's assistant, and that also happens um, uh, for Paul as well. There are four trials for Jesus' life, and Paul stands on trial four times with the Sanhedrin, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Uh, Jesus is declared innocent three times by Pilate. Uh, Three times Paul is declared innocent. Uh, There is a time when Jesus came before Herod, and then Paul also comes before a different Herod. Uh, And then there was also the attempt to release Jesus by a ruler, as well as Herod Agrippus trying to release Paul. That's very interesting to me, that there are all these parallels between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and his passion and his suffering as well, and that Paul uh, follows really the same kind of path. Which for us, what does that mean for us? How can we interpret that? What does that have to do with anything? It's a confirmation of Jesus' words to Paul when he experienced his conversion in Acts chapter 9 that Jesus revealed to him how much he would have to suffer for his name. It also confirms for us what Jesus said that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus also said that no servant is greater than his master. If this is how they treated me, then this is how they will also treat you. That's not really a a roaring sales pitch for Christianity, is it, right? That we have this cross to bear and that there's suffering and that there's a road uh, of humility and, and persecution ahead for us. But with eternal life and the promises of forgiveness of sins, there are also blessings attached to suffering in Jesus' name. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that, that um, a man who forfeits his soul and yet gains the world, what does it profit him? There is a gain in, in attaining eternal life in heaven, in, in the kingdom. And even if we have to suffer now, following in Christ's footsteps, like Paul is on this road to Jerusalem, there is a blessing attached to it, an eternal blessing. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So with that in mind, I wanted us to see this transition as we work into Acts 21 and for the remainder of the book. So let's just work through today's text and I'll make a few observations along the way. Starting in chapter 21, verse 17, Paul's long journey to Jerusalem has finally come. And so verse 17 of chapter 21 says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul 
went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Let's just pause here, because I have to point out that surely this is a bright spot in a very dark and difficult transition for Paul. He had just wrapped up those three missionary tours. His really effective ministry life and career was coming to an end. He knew that he was entering into the last phase of his life. His writings um, declare that. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've completed the task that God has given me. So, so Paul knows that there is an end in sight. And he had said his farewells and willingly accepted this road to Jerusalem, knowing that it would end in persecution and imprisonment and likely death. Um, but in light of that news bearing down on him, when he first arrives in Jerusalem, maybe he expected terrible things to happen immediately, but, but in, in the midst of that, there is this uh, warm greeting by the Jerusalem church and leadership. And during that time, he gives a full report of all the good things that God has done through him. He shares stories of conversions, maybe, maybe Lydia, maybe uh, the girl in Philippi that was possessed by a demon, maybe the Philippian jailer uh, who was converted in the midst of this earthquake. Paul is relating to them one by one these acts of grace that God is demonstrating. And it has this wonderful effect on, on a believer to hear these stories of what God is doing. We recently... Uh, celebrated our 10-year anniversary as a church, as a congregation. Ridgeline, of course, was planted and launched in, in 2013. Uh, of course, um, Rock Hill has been here for uh, about 700 years. Um, so this is not a new building or a new church, but but in our merger story, um, that was about five years ago. But, but Ridgeline, as a congregation, has only been here uh, for 10 years. And during that time, we were meeting, you know, different places in the Watson's basement at one time. And, um, and, and all of what we've experienced now was just kind of a hope at that point. But during that time, we amassed a number of um, supporters and, and partners. Uh, one church in particular, um, Cross Creek in Colleyville, Texas, just outside of the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Um, that particular church partnered with us and sent resources and funds and 10 or 20 missionary teams and, uh, and really labored with us in the gospel. Just about a month or two ago, I was there, and, and it had been a few years since I'd been there, but, but when I was there, a number of the people who had come and served in Souderton and Telford and Perkesey and, and, and the area... Uh, they, we all got together and we just began sharing stories and, and talking about all that God had done. Uh, Dave Morgan went with me on that trip. And, and as I began to relate his um, conversion story that took place and, and the transformation that God has done in his life, it just created such a depth of enjoyment and excitement among the believers who had labored so hard. I think that when we 
when we have this real bond between believers who labor in the kingdom together and we begin to share what God is doing in and around us and, and maybe he's, you don't see Him as active in your life but you hear about Him doing something in someone else's life and it, it just buoys you for a while and it uplifts you and builds you up. This always happens for me when the DeStefanos come home for a few weeks and, and we begin to hear about the work that they're doing in Coban in Guatemala. It warms our hearts and it encourages us. This happened for Paul as he entered into Jerusalem and he began to spend time with the Jerusalem church leadership. He, he meets with James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church. Paul also delivers this incredible offering that he had been gathering from the churches uh, on his missionary tours. And, and this is to relieve the suffering and the poverty for the churches in Judea. It's an act of grace and generosity. There's this reporting of the grace of God that uh, has been demonstrated among all the churches. The sharing of God's stories can be so encouraging to your faith. And so let me encourage you that when you're with other believers, make it your ambition to build them up. Make it your ambition to encourage, to ask those good questions. What has the Lord been teaching you lately? What's God been doing in your life lately? Let me share with you a scripture that God has encouraged me with. What is something that God has has done through you or in you? Ask each other about the grace of God that you've experienced in each other's lives lately. This is that sort of as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another sort of aspect of being a part of church. This happens regularly uh, when we meet together on Sundays. I see side conversations all the time and I hear things that God is doing in your life and it's encouraging. This is what Paul experienced. But as he continues in the passage here, continuing in verse 20, uh, James shifts gears and he says, Uh, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Meaning that there are all these new Jewish believers all over. And, And then he adds this detail about them. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. Let's just stop here and kind of summarize this section because there's a little bit going on here. All these believing Jews that Paul uh, heard about in Jerusalem had a zeal for the law. That is, after being redeemed from the works of the law and the weight and the burden of trying to keep the law, after they'd had their eyes open to the grace available in Christ, they finally begin to see the beauty of the Old Testament. And they begin to see the wisdom of God in all its contents. And this led them to a heightened zeal for the law possibly 
surely they often cross the line into an unhealthy legalism. In the book of Galatia, Galatians, Paul describes how he had to confront Peter to his face because Peter distanced himself from these new Gentile believers and he started to associate with these sort of legalistic, zealous for the law Jews. Maybe this is what's taking place here. And I want to return to this verse toward the end of the sermon here because I think there's some application for us today. But it's helpful for us to understand that the Jerusalem Council had already affirmed that salvation was by grace through faith alone. And that they were not going to place a burden on these new Gentile believers that they should have to follow the Old Testament law. They had sent out letters confirming this. But for these believing Jews, being culturally Jewish, meant that their entire life was steeped in these customs and practices. And it wasn't as easy for them to, to, to walk away from that. I'm occasionally asked, do Christians have to follow all the Old Testament laws? It's usually when somebody wants to get a tattoo and they've read Leviticus 19 about, you know, is it wrong to get a tattoo? By the way, that verse has specifically to do with scarring or cutting as it relates to these habits that people did in pagan nations when someone died. Uh, mourning by cutting themselves or scarring. The word tattooing wasn't even a thing then uh, as much as scarring and marking was. But when I'm asked this question, do believers have to follow the Old Testament law, my my standard reply is that in Christ, we are free from a life of religious legalism that leads us to gain favor with God. For some of you, that may be just the best news you've heard in a long time because you labor to find some sort of peace with God through what you do, through religious activities or through dutiful sort of religious things that you think might win you favor with God, as though your life is being weighed on these scales, and the the more bad things you do, uh, the more God is unhappy with you, and the more good things you do, the more pleased you are. In Christ, at the cross, all of those works were abolished. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation through good works. Jesus accomplished the greatest work that you can do on the cross, and you can't improve on that. Jesus declared in Christ that we are free from a life of religious legalism in order to gain favor with God. He declared all foods to be clean. He summed up the law of God by declaring that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. So no, we're not obligated to follow the 622 Levitical law code that was really designed to show us how sinful we are and to show us the wisdom of God in providing these laws. We're not obligated to follow those laws. So these Jews, these believers, these disciples and followers of Jesus, they added to their devotion to Jesus on top of it a zeal for the law. They also make here a false assumption about Paul, thinking that because he preaches the gospel to the Gentile world, that he must have abandoned all Mosaic ritual and law. 
the Jerusalem leadership, they don't want to cause this unnecessary trouble, so they come up with this plan. There are these four guys, they're taking a Nazarite vow, which is a 30-day vow, they shave their head. Uh, Paul is not going to take the Nazarite vow like he did in between his second and third missionary journey, the 30-day vow there. Uh, But he instead takes the seven-day purification vow, which was really common in those times if you'd walked into the Roman world and traveled as much as Paul would had, then when you came into Jerusalem, that it was natural for a person to come in and take this purification vow, which is what he does. He pays their expenses to have their head shaved, and he's going to join them in a sort of process as well. They notify the priests at the temple. They talk about what they're going to do. They give their plan, and then they talk about the offerings that they're going to make at the time that their vow is fulfilled. And then James adds this summary of the Jerusalem council for Max 15. Verse 27, this is where things kind of heat up. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. Can you imagine this scene? Paul has lived this multiple times in his missionary journeys, but I don't know that he expected this to happen so quickly in his time in Jerusalem. The mob assaults him. He'd only been in town a week or two, and there's, there's already this riot. They had seized him, they dragged him out of the temple, they locked the gates, it completely disrupted the temple organization, all the daily activities, everything went on lockdown. And as they were seeking to kill him, the news spread fast and these Roman officers, you know, scramble the jets and get the riot gear on and they go out to a place where Paul is being beaten to death and they stop the Jews from killing him. I don't know how much of an application I can make from that section um, other than maybe uh, don't beat another person to death or don't start a riot or maybe don't make false assumptions, right? Maybe ask a few questions first. Do some investigation. These are quick to, they're, they're quick to jump to conclusions and as a result, things escalate really quickly. Paul's life is literally saved And then comes this interesting twist of events in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? 
And the tribune says, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. A couple of things I'll point out um, here at this point is maybe two things that I found interesting. Paul is always interested in talking to a crowd that wants to kill him. (laughs) Um, I used to follow this guy named Mark Cahill. He's an incredible evangelist. He, He would buy thousands and thousands and thousands of tracks and 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 his philosophy or his mindset was anytime a crowd is gathering i assume that god has gathered them for me to share the gospel and and he's shared the gospel with well over a hundred thousand people in his 25 year time uh, shared the gospel with tiger woods he shared the gospel with charles barkley he played basketball with charles barkley at auburn and and charles barkley always seemed to open doors for him anytime they found themselves in the same city barkley wasn't necessarily a believer but every time cahill was there barkley would invite him into these sort of inner crowds and he would share the gospel boldly um, with anybody and he shared the gospel um uh, uh, any time that there was a crowd, he was there. It reminds me of this um, unusual guy that I met in Doylestown. Um, every time I was in Doylestown during a time when we considered planting a church there in 2011, 2010, uh, there was this 25-year-old kind of street student. He was always barefoot. He had long hair. Um, he wasn't homeless or anything, and, but he was just kind of a an eccentric guy. But every time I saw him, uh, he was in a conversation with 10 or 15 people on the sidewalk, and people would just kind of gather to listen to this guy talk. And one day I, I was having coffee, and, um, and he was in the same coffee shop that I was, and, and I began to share m- my story with him, and I shared my testimony, and I shared the gospel with him. And, and he wasn't necessarily a believer. He just had this kind of wild idea of of uniting people. I, I can't even remember all the things that he was trying to do, but it was unusual to say the least. But for like the next 10 weeks, every time I was in Doylestown and I saw him and I saw a crowd, he would wave me over and he would just tell the whole crowd, you got to listen to this guy's story. And I would, I would walk over and I would, um, he would set me up and he had an audience and an ear with them. And so whenever he handed attention over to me, I I would share my testimony and I would share the gospel and, and it would last 20 minutes or so. And this happened a dozen times or more. It was just one of these kind of unusual things. All this kind of reminds me of this um, idea that Paul has this assumption that anytime a crowd has gathered, um, he's going to try to share the gospel. Remember in, in the riot in Ephesus, everyone was urging Paul, don't go in there. And they had to hold him back. He was, they were trying to kill him and he wanted to go into this arena and try to share the gospel with everyone who was gathered there. That's one thing that I found interesting about the life of Paul. But a second thing that's interesting to me on a, on a less serious note is that Paul is mistaken for this Egyptian assassin. 
Um, it's kind of funny to me. Um, and this is a well-documented um, incident in, in the Jerusalem area. Uh, Josephus mentions that there was a revolt led by an Egyptian Jew. It had been put down by the Roman governor Felix with this Egyptian fleeing and 4,000 assassins going with them into the desert. He speaks of these men, these Sicarios, uh, or dagger men, who terrorized Roman sympathizers uh, by stabbing them under the cover of crowds. For whatever reason, this tribune says, are you that guy? Um, I don't know what Paul looked like, um, but Paul... In one second, he's an assassin. He's Jason born to this guy. And, and in the next, Paul just says, do you mind if I speak to the crowd? And this guy says, sure. Incredibly unusual for Paul to receive this kind of favor from the tribune. One second, he's um, this Egyptian guy. And the next minute, he, he's going to launch into this defense. Now, the defense is what we're going to cover next week. That's where we'll start um, next week with the first of these five defenses. But I want to circle back around to um, the zeal for the law thing that Paul uh, had heard about in verse 20. In verse 20, we had read that many thousands of Jews had placed their faith in Jesus. They believed Him as the Messiah. They They were born again believers like Jesus had taught Nicodemus in John 3. But we also hear that these believers were zealous for the law. This this is more of an observation, something I'd like to suggest to us in closing on this New Year's Eve. This text isn't necessarily teaching us about misguided zeal. You do see it in a few places. The Jewish believers are zealous for the law. The Jewish opponents are zealous for Moses and the temple and against Paul and and other Jewish Christians. But all that withstanding, let me just kind of close with this insight. Believers can often find themselves with a misguided zeal. You and I, we're susceptible We should be zealous. There's no doubt about it. There should be a a zeal that takes place for the redeemed. But our zeal should primarily be aimed for love for Jesus. A zeal for the lost to be saved. A zeal for the Word of God, for the glory of God, for the worship of God, for things to be done in purity and holiness. But oftentimes we can take the zeal and the passion and the effort and the energy that is um, supposed to be focused toward the Lord and we can place it on other sort of uh, periphery things. We can place it on, I, I, I know this from my past, but we can place, place it on the theological system, right? You hear people talk about cage stage Calvinism, right? When somebody is so amped up about Reformed theology that they're almost unbearable to be around. You hear people talk about Ar- Arminianism or, or getting enthusiastic about dispensationalism or replacement theology or covenant theology. We can get really zealous for a theological framework, which are in and of themselves fine, Many of them are good and helpful. They're lenses by which we can overlay and sort of make sense of Scripture. There's not a bad thing. We can become too zealous for theological systems, but we can also become zealous about a style of worship. 
whether we sing psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs, who sings them and what style, how dim the lights are, how dark the room is, how bright the room is. We can become zealous about silly things like a church environment and what the decorations look like in a room. We can become overly enthusiastic about a discipleship program or a church program. Listen, many of these things I'm talking about aren't necessarily bad. But where things get tricky for us is when we're overly zealous for something other than just a pure love for Jesus. We can lose sight of our love for Jesus, for His Word, for the work of the Gospel, for His passion, and Jesus said to seek and to save the lost. We can become so fanatic about the smallest thing and and not so eager to, to worship Jesus. Listen, if you found yourself zealous, maybe even argumentative or passionate in defending something, either a theological system or a style of liturgy or some program or some favorite author uh, or some favorite topic, if you kind of favor any of these things more than you do these foundational essentials, you could have disordered affections. And so let me sort of offer you a course correct in closing. And I think it's appropriate for a New Year's Eve sort of uh, way to set the tone, hopefully for your heart and mindset for the new year. If you need a course correct, if you found yourself in that position, today is a good day to reestablish your love and passion for Jesus. To maybe look back, to look back on to a time when you just loved the Lord, when you couldn't stop talking about Him. And you couldn't stop talking to him. I can remember a, a time, in maybe eight or se- seven or eight years ago, and um, just my prayer life was just large. It's not that way as much today. I say that just in, in vulnerability. It's there, but it's not like it was then. I remember a time when I was reading Scripture, just couldn't get enough in that time as well. I was in Dallas at a hotel room and, and I, I went to bed praying, um, woke up at 3 a.m. and just prayed for an hour and then woke up early in the morning and was praying. It was just that kind of a season when I couldn't spend enough time with Jesus. There was a time when you might have been ready to obey Him in every little detail. You, you were just fueled with this desire Lord Jesus, how can I be more pleasing to you? Not because I have to, because I want to. Whatever you had to do, you did. Because he was your first love. See, this misplaced zeal that these Jewish believers had for the law, maybe it surpassed their love and devotion to Jesus. But we know that in Revelation to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says this to a group of zealous believers there. I know your works, I know your toil, I know your patient endurance, I know how you can't bear with those who are evil, that you've tasted, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and I know that you've not grown weary. Everything that John, Jesus said through John, the apostle, to the church in Ephesus in that letter, points to a zeal that they had, but, but listen to Jesus's Remark 
in Revelation 2, 4. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, pastorally, I just felt like this was an appropriate word that we could uh, dwell on as we think toward a new year and new routines and new habits that our love for Jesus might grow and that our love for things that are not quite so important might shrink in light of who He is. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word today and we thank You for the opportunity that we have to gather and to hear it. And, and it's our humble prayer that that you would use your word to challenge us and to change us and to draw us closer to you, to help us to know you more. Um, we thank you for this word. I thank you for what it's meant to me. Uh, and I pray that you would use it for others in, in a similar way, in the way that you've used it for me. I thank you for this body of believers, how encouraging they are, how upbuilding they are, how much you've accomplished among us in such a short amount of time. We're grateful and we acknowledge that it is you, it's your work. Jesus, you promised that you will build your church. And so we thank you for that, that you are building your church right here among us. And we pray that we would contribute to that. But above all, I pray that our love for you would increase all the more. In Jesus' name, amen.